while police photographing our license plate. What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Good afternoon and welcome to the Reasonable Voices News Talk Radio Program. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, and my guest today is Eileen Davis, who is a professional nurse, adjunct professor, community advocate, and care provider in a clinic for the uninsured in Central Virginia. Eileen Davis remains dedicated to the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. It's an ongoing struggle. She's been a part of it for decades. Her organization's efforts have succeeded in passing the Equal Rights Amendment with bipartisan support in the Virginia Senate for the last five or so sessions, only to be stuck in committee in the Virginia House of Delegates. But that all changed on January 15, 2020, coincidentally Martin Luther King's birthday, when Virginia became the 38th state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. Then, as Congresswoman Jackie Spears put it, quoting, On Thursday, February 13, 2020, the U.S. House of Representatives passed my legislation to facilitate ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. This historic and bipartisan vote sent a clear message that the vast majority of Americans believe women are equal to men and that our country's foundational document should recognize that equality, unquote. But the fight for gender equality is not over and has not been easy. One example of a challenging day, shall we say, the day that the then chair of the House Privileges and Elections Subcommittee, Republican Delegate Margaret Ranzone, squared off with our guest today, <laughs> Equal Rights Amendment Advocate Eileen Davis. I laugh only because I know Eileen very well. Again, a professional registered nurse who has since served as the medical presence, if you will, in Charlottesville during the troubled month of August 2017. Eileen is everywhere for the rights and equality of women and all people. Welcome, my dear friend, Eileen Davis. Good morning to you, my dear friend, as well. And good morning, Charlottesville, my adopted city, um, which I love dearly. Thank you. 
Eileen, if you could tell us to find for us what is Crossover Day and some of its accomplishments. Well, Crossover Day um, is the day when the House considers bills in the Senate and the, in the Virginia Senate, and the Virginia Senate considers the bills that have been, that have been voted on successfully in the House, which is why we passed it in both chambers on January 15th, which was Martin Luther King's actual birthday. Yes. But the actual legal ratification did not happen until January 27th. The House certified the Senate's bill, and the Senate certified the House bill. It was procedural, but Virginia's ratification was not legal, you know, in terms of procedure until January 27th. Yes. And at that time, the clerk of the of Virginia, um, the clerk of the court, and the clerk of the Senate, and the clerk of the House, basically signed a letter that it was ratified, and sent copies to the congressional delegation of. Virginia and to the archivist of the United States at the National Archives, which is interesting because, you know, that's only happened 17 times mm. in our nation's history because the first 10 amendments were the Bill of Rights in 1791, which was also in Virginia. So mm. the last ratified state gets the cert, they get a copy from a big formal, you know, sealed copy that says, that this, so every member of the congressional delegation gets it. So the last time that happened was in 1993, when Michigan was the threshold state to ratify the Madison Amendment, which is germane to what we're talking about, because the Madison Amendment takes away the contemporaneous argument that the Equal Rights Amendment is, quote, too old, because the Madison Amendment was 203 years from start to finish because it was put in by James Madison. Yes. So, so when that passed, the congressional delegation of Michigan got... I think there were 11 of them got them, you know, got a letter. And uh, the 19th Amendment in Tennessee was the final state and only the Tennessee delegation. So it was like very, very interesting. And uh, I've seen a copy of the letter that showed up to the congressional delegation. And there's actually pictures of the Congress people as the threshold state that has brought constitutional equality for all persons, regardless of race, religion, national origin, and now gender on account of sex, has now met its threshold by Article 5 of the Constitution, on account of sex, now takes its place alongside race, religion, national origin. At least it should be once we're done challenging in court. Yes. So as I said, it's not over. It's not only the no, not it's only not over. court, it's not but it's, over. The, it's the U.S. Senate, it's the court system, it, it's the archivist. Tell well, us the about archivist that. Yes. is an interesting thing. The arch this is one of these little points of minutias. Uh, I will begin by saying I'm not surprised I expected this. Mm -hmm. In the words of Frederick Douglass 150 years ago, plus or minus, he said, and I quote, power never cedes power without a fight. It never has and it never will. So Frederick Douglass said it best. We were, were not at all surprised that they, that they uh, pushed back and we expected it. And uh, the thing is, is that when Nevada ratified in 2017, the archivist quietly certified the ratification and put it in. And when um, Illinois ratified in 2018, the archivist quietly certified it and put it in. But then when um, Virginia ratified, you know, in January, they went, oh, no, that's just, this is the threshold. What are we going to do? And suddenly... Uh, the administration got their DOJ to uh, do a cease and desist letter. So it was, it was strictly an obstructionist move, in my opinion. And the interesting thing is, is that Alabama and two other states, South Dakota and I don't, don't want to say Mississippi, also um, sued us to tell us that, that we can't 
can't we can't do this which was to me a ridiculous interference but then in response to that 20 other states well no in response to that virginia nevada and illinois have now joined in a combined suit telling the archivist that his his job as a the archivist is strictly ministerial and that article five tells him that his role is when the threshold state is reached that he has to certify it like he did Nevada and Illinois and put it in. So that's that has been that is a lawsuit that has been submitted by Attorney General Mark Herring, joined by the Attorney General of Nevada and the Attorney General of Illinois. And now twenty other states have joined that suit calling for the archivist to do his job as outlined in the Constitution. So Again, in the words of Frederick Douglass, the powers that be are throwing bricks in front of us and logs down the middle of the road trying to stop us, but it's not going to work. We, we knew this was coming, and we're ready for it. So why, if the archivist has done his job with other states, what changed that position for the Commonwealth of Virginia? You'll have to ask them. In my opinion, when they thought Nevada ratified, it was like they weren't really paying attention because it didn't wasn't it wasn't the state, it wasn't uh -huh. the threshold state. Gotcha. And then when Illinois ratified, they're like, I think they were just kind of like, well, okay, just another state, no big deal. But we are the tipping point state. We are the threshold state. We are the state that completes the ratification requirements. Yes. So when that happened, they went, oh. This could get real. That just happened. What are we going to do about this? We can't let we can't let honest account of sex be in the Constitution equal to race, religion, and national origin. So we got to do something. So basically, what they said to David Fierro, who is the archivist of the United States, is basically a cease and desist letter. And as the uh, Mark Herring Nevada Illinois lawsuit, Mark Herring Virginia uh -huh. lawsuit lays out, is the archivist's role in this is strictly ministerial. He is, and I, I no disrespect to David Fierro, but he is basically a, a the archivist of the United States is basically a, a very highly glorified librarian. Uh -huh. So he, you know, that's his that's his job is to serve. He's a clerk of the court slash librarian. So his job is strictly ministerial, and they know, and, and he's supposed to just do that. Now, he gets a cease and desist letter from a president's appointee in the Department of Justice, and, you know, what's the guy supposed to do? Now he basically is not going to act until the courts tell him what he can do. Mm. I, I personally think that he would happily certify it like he did in Nevada and Illinois, but now that he's received this the cease and desist letter from the Department of Justice appointee of the, of this administration, he is unable to do anything. So now we have to go to court to have him carry out what is laid out clearly in the Constitution as his ministerial duty. So some people just can't stand the fact that women are equal. All right. Power never cedes power without a fight. It never That's has. That's right. It never will. I remember once, and I and I know you were there, of course, because you were the reason I was there. But we were. Oh, it's been maybe five years at the State House, the General Assembly in Richmond, Virginia, pushing for and having speakers speak to us. I think that was when the year that now former Governor Terry McAuliffe was running to be governor, and he yeah. stopped by. But in any case, the, the big thing there was that we were trying to express the Equal Rights Amendment and why it was the it was should happen. And I wish I could remember the gentleman's name who spoke. He was a guest speaker, and I think he was a member of the General Assembly. He said, women, men are never going to give you equal rights. You're going to have to take it. 
Yes. And that, yes. do you remember who that was? Because it really got to me. I think it might have been Henry Marsh. That's yes. That uh, I think so too. Henry and the, Marsh was, has been one of our early champions and one of the most poignant moments on this journey, and which has been brought up many, many times, was when Henry Marsh. We now we for your for your listeners, I, I need to say that the Virginia Senate has now passed the Equal Rights Amendment with bipartisan support seven times. Mm. And it was stopped in the House of Delegates by, um, by, a, by we had the votes, mm -hmm. but the uh, leadership of the House of Delegates refused to let it come to a vote because they knew if it came to a vote, it would pass. Yes. And it wasn't until we flipped leadership that the will of the electorate and the citizenry, the people elected and the citizenry was heard with a vote, which is why we finally, so they have been thwarting final ratification procedurally for quite a while. So that's the first thing. So the fact that we were thwarted from a, you know, we were, you know, we were fighting for, you know, give us our day in, on the floor, give yes. us the dignity of a debate. We've been fighting that for years. So we were obstructed from having the dignity of the debate for many, many years until we were able to get the leadership out of the way. And now we are being thwarted by a cease and desist letter. And now that we've got the will of the people has been served, which is basically what the the Nevada, Illinois, of uh, Virginia lawsuit says is our our electeds, our states have spoken. You know, you cannot just disregard the fact that our electorates have done our uh, constitutionally as laid out in the Constitution. We've done what we're supposed to do. And now, you, you, you know, you're not you just can't obstruct the will of our citizenry. That's basically what the lawsuit says, as I understand it. Yes. So anyway, so, yeah. So Henry Marsh, when we were in the um, House, of, when we were in the Virginia Senate, this was the year that he retired. Yes. He wanted he was the sponsor of the Equal Rights Amendment and he wanted it to be done. And and frankly, I think he wanted it to be done as the like the last big thing he did before he went into private life. Uh -huh. And this was to him was the the last the, you know, the last thing he wanted. And he called the Equal Rights Amendment on the, at, in the Virginia Senate the unfinished civil rights issue of the Constitution. Mm. And when they turned him down, he literally teared up. And, yeah. you know, he was like literally in tears, choked yeah. up and in tears, because he knew that this thing, this important last thing, this important last civil rights legislation was not going to be something he was going to be able to claim. And I think he wanted to end his career with this. So, you know, he was a huge champion and he understood he understood that civil rights you know, is important and you have to get the laws codified. And if we're not, if, if on account of sex is not in the Constitution, then anything else is simply less. We have to be enshrined in our fundamental document in order for us to truly be foundationally included in this, con in this country's laws. Everything else is consolation prizes, in my opinion. Okay. We're going to take a short break. This is great. We're going to start with, and I know we've talked about this a lot before, Eileen, but for those who may not have heard it or need a reminder that this this hang-up, this technicality that's being used, even though you so addressed it through the Madison uh, issue, has been that arbitrarily, as I understand it, a, a deadline date was put not even on the amendment proposed itself, but it was well, added. You tell well, me. Well, there's a couple of little nuances here. And, you know, again, the Equal Rights Amendment has been hanging around since 1923 mm. when it was first uh, submitted by Susan B. Anthony's nephew. And his name escapes me right now. I think 
oh, I can't remember his name. I think it was Melton, but I couldn't. Anyway, it was submitted by Susan B. Anthony's nephew in 1923, first time to the floor of Congress. Yes. And it was written by Alice Paul, and it was the Part B to the 19th Amendment. Because when Alice Paul put in the right to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any other state on account of sex, you know, and that passed, and that was the 19th Amendment. That was just the right to vote. And she knew that getting the right to vote and enfranchise was the most important thing and that the rest of the rights would come as a Part B. So the Equal Rights Amendment was the Part B. And it was basically the same wording. Instead of the right to vote shall not be denied or abridged, it's equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of, of sex. It's literally the same amendment with yes. the switch out of the right to vote with equality of rights. It's really, it, it, and it's that simple. So people are shocked to understand that, and which is funny because I've had many people, because they keep coming up with, you know, you used to talk about why there's been so much resistance. Mm. The reasons to be against the Equal Rights Amendment shift from day to day, because once you unpack one argument, they kind of pivot to another. And, never, yes. and nobody ever really says this is about a fear of losing status, because that's what it is. It's yes. the power thing that, that Frederick Douglass talked about. But what happens is that they argued everything from they don't know what the word sex means. Well, have you ever heard anybody argue what the 19th Amendment means? No. You know, the right to vote on yes. account of sex? You, no. If, if nothing else, the word sex has been codified in the Constitution because it is sat in the Constitution as an adjective to describe a class of people for 100 years. Yes. So clearly it's on the Constitution, having the word on account of sex in the 19th Amendment, has certified the fact that we all know constitutionally that the word sex is ex is accepted in the Constitution as meaning everybody. Yes, yes. Everybody. That's mm -hmm. what it means. Everybody. Yes. And, you know, one of our state senators said on the floor of Congress, well, this really doesn't do anything for women because the word women isn't even in it. Well, the word women isn't in the 19th Amendment either. Yeah. But that's the whole point. Women were these, 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 these laws and and you know the early constitution said all men are created equal not because it meant that men were supposed to be everybody it was because men were supposed to be men the 14th mm -hmm. amendment didn't say male citizen and male inhabitant three times for no reason it could have said citizen and inhabitant and specifically said male citizen and male inhabitant in explicit intent to exclude women now the Equal Rights Amendment does include all persons, and there are many benefits to men in mm. the Equal Rights Amendment, So that which needs to be said. But as the cake is baked, it was originally penned to exclude women, and because of that, women have the most to gain, and certainly the largest group that the Equal Rights Amendment serves. Okay, I'm going to cut in. We're going to take a break. We are talking with Eileen Davis, professional RN advocate for equal rights amendment and has been so for many decades and still fighting the battle for all of us. It is not just women that benefit. You want to know how I know? How about husbands? Think about it. Stay with us. We'll be right back with Eileen Davis. And now enjoy Watchfire Music featuring vocal artist Jenny Burton singing Tear Down the House from Is Anybody Listening? Those who built it did the things they had to do with the highest intention. 
to the Reasonable Voices News Talk Radio program. My guest today, R.N. Eileen Davis, who has been an advocate for the, well, for the Equal Rights Amendment, but for gender equality in every sense of the word. A lot of progress has been made, and I mentioned as the end of the first segment because I wanted people to stop thinking of Equal Rights Amendment as just about women, because women permeate our society and culture in every way. Eileen brought up an excellent point, how her profession as a registered nurse influenced her or guided her or connected her to this fight in the first place for gender equality. Tell us about that, Eileen. Well, I've always had lived in a ratified state before I moved to Virginia in the early 90s. I've been here almost 30 years now. And I will admit when I came to Virginia, I did not realize that I was in an unratified state. I knew that the Equal Rights Amendment never met its constitutional threshold, but I did not realize that Virginia was just didn't think of Virginia as not having done that. Anyway, I was working in a clinic for the uninsured, and this was pre-ACA, and the clinic still exists, I must say, mm-hmm. uh, because even though we have ACA, we still have a lot of uninsured people in this country who will fall through holes, but that's another story. But back before ACA came and there was the opportunity for people to obtain insurance that didn't have it, I was taking care of a disparate number of women, women who were employed. I must say that. Mm-hmm. They were employed. They would show up in, in scrubs because they were home health aides. They were nurses' aides in hospitals. And that really burned me because a lot of these people had worked in healthcare, allied healthcare professionals. They were they were the people that were feeding your grandmother. They were the people that were doing the, you know, the sanitizing the rooms between you being discharged and the next person being admitted. There were a lot of medical care workers, which really struck me, that would show up after work in their garb they had spent all day in a medical facility taking care of people and they them and they were all under underpaid i mean they were eight dollar an hour seven dollar an hour employees but they did not have insurance it was not offered to them and it was not part of their employment plan if they had if they were had a had a, had a pregnancy they were expected to come back to very physical jobs you know very early on and then you know none of this waiting till your six weeks postpartum visit when you're care provider tells you that you can resume normal activity they would often go back to work before they really were signed off to do so and there's no other area of care in the medical profession where people chronically just go back before they're told that they can after their body has been through you know a a big thing Mm -hmm. and uh, while we don't want to medicalize pregnancy it is certainly a stress on the body and we all know that yes and I found this to be a real problem that these women off were just uninsured and they worked. So the idea that people go to a clinic for the uninsured because they are, you know, not, you know, working and not 
getting up at six o'clock in the morning, but these people were working seven to three, 12 hour shift, and they were coming in after work in their uniforms mm -hmm. to get care. And I realized, and I was, this happened so much that I realized that I was sort of like looking at this, and I'm realizing that this, you know, part of this is because these women are just not being treated equally, that the Equal Rights Amendment is one of these things, that these issues of treatment during pregnancy and these issues of returning to work and these issues of being fired from their job if they don't return to work, even before they are being told by, a, by their, their care provider that they can. I started to realize that a lot of this stuff was really just permeating, and I realized that you know the pink-collar professions were really suffering. And then I started looking at ways to get around it. And this still translates today. I mean, we're doing a lot of work now. I'm on the um, State Health Committee for the NAACP, and disparate outcomes of postpartum women in the in the black community, when black women are, are, are in this country a very high postpartum death rates, mm. one of the highest in the world. Wow. And then, and we and, yeah, and it's it's a crisis and we're looking at it and we don't know why. And I am working um, with a, myself with a, a, a physician as well, and we are we are really studying this, and we are, we have been done presentations, and we're looking at this, and there's legislation that's being considered to really figure this out. And one of the things that I am seeing is that a lot of it is that we are asking these women; these women are just they're not they're they're not they're just not. They're being asked to do things that they're, that are physically it is it is challenging them. They are they all have they have lower income jobs, more physical jobs. They don't have the benefits. You know, I have a I know a young woman who has a good job and she had a four months of pregnancy leave, and I was talking to her about three months into it, and she was you know talking about how she would be turning to work in another month, and I said, well, you know, if you were a low income worker, you would have gone back to work two weeks, three weeks after delivery, or you would have been told the job would not be there when you returned. And she looked at me and she said, that's disgusting. Mm. I said, well, the problem is, is women that have better jobs like you do need to understand that what you're doing is not normal for most women. Mm. And, and, and imagine how, and, and, you know, and so this is, these are the kinds of things that we're looking at. These are, there are areas and there are just so many ways that we say we honor women. We say we honor families. We say we honor all of these things, and the same people that are against us because they think we're antithetical to the traditional family needs to understand that supporting women actually supports the yes. traditional family. Yes. You know, if you want to support women, you know, support the fact that they can take off the time they need when they, they deliver. Support the fact that they need a living wage to take care of themselves and their families. Support the fact that equality strengthens families. Equality is for everyone. It's it's a self-multiplier. It's not a zero-sum game. Yes. And the more there is equality for everyone, you know, the more there is. It's like love. Equality is like love. The more you give, the more you have. Yes. It's a self-multiplier. It's not a bag of pennies. It's not pie. Yes, Exactly. And it, so that's uh, how I got involved. I, I was looking at what I saw was a whole lot of like disparity, and as I drilled yes. down on it, it kept returning me to the basic missing legal enshrinement of women as equal, and there was nothing to stop them. And then I started looking at the case law, the case law like Duke versus Walmart case, mm -hmm. and 
Duke versus Walmart case was the largest gender discrimination case in the United States. And that was basically put in by a woman named Betty Duke, who was, a, as it happens, happens to be a black woman. Mm-hmm. And that's germane because if Betty Duke had filed her case based on her race, she would have won. But she filed her case based on gender because she had over 3,000 women in her case mm-hmm. because they were they were white, they were brown, they were black. It wasn't a, a racial discrimination. It was a gender discrimination mm-hmm. class action suit. And when it went to the Supreme Court, as you know, procedurally, the Supreme Court has to decide well, what constitutional principle has been violated, and gender equality is not a constitutional mm. principle. That's the point. Gender equality is not a constitutional principle. And as Justice Scalia said, the question is whether or not the Constitution requires discrimination based on sex, but whether it prohibits it. It doesn't. Nobody ever voted for that, and you just can't reinterpret it in. In other words, don't say the 14th Amendment covers it because it simply does not. Mm. And if it does, it's inferred, and it's a lower level of scrutiny. So when Betty Duke brought her suit, the Supreme Court said this is the largest class action gender discrimination case ever in the history of the world. Mm. We can't ignore it, but we don't know how to take it. And then they thought they talked about it and talked about it. And they said, wait a minute. They, the Supreme Court decided to take the case based on the Commerce Clause because it was the largest, um, you know, they just wasn't a case they could ignore. Uh-huh. So they said because it was the largest employer, coast to coast, in, in all 50 states, they decided to take it on a, as a Commerce Clause case. And Betty Dukes did not survive. The Supreme Court turned her down. Scalia wrote the opinion, turning her down. And mm-hmm. it, it, she didn't pat. She didn't. The, 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 the Duke versus Walmart case was not declined because it wasn't a gender discrimination case. That was never addressed. It was declined because it was never a Commerce Clause violation. You know, in other words, they had to put it in something where it didn't belong because they didn't have they didn't have gender discrimination there to be an area of of complaint. Mm. So, you know, everybody needs to think about that. You have the largest class action suit in the world ever in the United States go before the Supreme Court and they actually have to turn it away because it is not a constitutional violation for, to gender discriminate. It is not. And and that's when um, Justice Scalia gave us the quote that affirms what we've always said, that the 14th Amendment is not and well, they really kind of meant gender. No, they never. They never really kind of meant gender because if they just because interestingly, when the Fourteenth Amendment was first done, women, gender, sex on, was in the Fourteenth Amendment, and it had to be pulled out because it was a bridge too far. The Fourteenth Amendment was not going to happen. They had to basically throw women under the bus to put through the Fourteenth Amendment with race, religion, and national origin. Yes. So it wasn't that it was inferred; it was purposely excluded. So we really have to know our history. Yes. So anyway. When that, when that happened and Justice Scalia was asked about it, why did you turn Betty Dukes away and why did you turn Lily Ledbetter away, who also was turned away? Mm-hmm. When Lily Ledbetter filed, people think the Lily Ledbetter Act was the first time that Lily Ledbetter went to the courts. No, Lily Ledbetter, Lily Ledbetter Act, I pretty much consider that a consolation prize because the only reason we got that intermediate congressional law, uh, which, by the way, has not turned out to be – very particularly effective. It's got like a 9% success rate. The Lily Ledbetter Act was, was put in after Lily Ledbetter found out at her retirement party that she had been discriminated against for 29 years. Mm. At her retirement party, she found out that her uh, pension was about 40% less than another person that she had trained and that she had hired and who had less time on the job was making, was going to have a 40% higher pension. And that rolled her into understanding that for the prior 29 years, she had been paid substantially lower 
than her male counterparts and no one had ever told her. Yes. So when she sued and it went all the way to the Supreme Court, which by the way took nine years, so when people do seek redress, which is an answer I give to people that say, well, if women are discriminated against, they could just sue. Yeah, well, not so easy. Yes, it right. took her nine years to, to get to the Supreme Court. And the interesting thing is when she went through the states, the state she was in had a state-level equal rights amendment. And the state you know, affirmed her. She was in like three different levels of state court. But Goodyear knew that if they could get out of the state and get to the Supreme Court, that mm -hmm. there would be no such uh, – and they were right. I mean, yeah. she was she was successful on the state level because the state level had an equal rights amendment. But when she got to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court doesn't have an equal rights amendment, and she was turned down. And then when Scalia was asked how could he possibly have turned first Lily Ledbetter away, and then, of course, Betty Dukes, same thing, um, he said – this is a quote – the question is not whether the Constitution requires discrimination based on sex, but whether it prohibits it. It doesn't. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever voted for that, and you can't just reinterpret it in. Yes. In other words, it's not in the 14th Amendment. You can't say that it kind of sort of is in the 14th Amendment. It's not. And you can't just reinterpret it in. You can't just say, well, now we know that we kind of mean. No, the originalists say if it's not there, it's not there. And if you don't like it, get an amendment. Mm. So that's what we're doing. That's yes. what we did. We yes. did exactly what we needed to do to correct what was left out of the Constitution, and that was on account of sex. And if I may interject here, the, all of these are the, the best possible arguments, and there are more, for the need yeah. for an Equal Rights Amendment. There are medical, everyday, daily, pragmatic things, medically, with your doctors, with your health care, that affect women in a negative way. For instance, even the medical tests are done based on men. Oh, you could speak oh, yeah. to that, of course, as opposed to women. And then when we wonder why we don't know about women's heart conditions or the potential heart attacks and diabetes and whatever, it's because the tests are relying on male participants, yes? Oh, yeah. Uh, medical dosing is based on a, a male, a 185-pound man. Yeah. That is medical dosing. And so if they tell you the average dose is take one pill a day, well, if you're a 100-pound woman, there is a lot of medication out there that, you know, a 100-pound woman should not be taking. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and there are some doctors now that are actually more cognizant of that and will give a pediatric dose to a smaller person. The idea that it's, that it's everything is based on there's a, there's a whole lot of bias. In other words, the more you look, Marcello, it the just, more you find it. It, it, it goes, it cuts deep. Yes, it's and, not. And, and then people, this is about the time when people say, well, you don't think that an equal rights amendment is going to cure discrimination based on sex, do you? No, not any more than the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment wiped away racial discrimination. Mm -hmm. It did not. Of course not. No. But at least we have an enshrined principle. At least we have redress if we want to go all the way to the Supreme Court with something. At least we have an enshrinement in our fundamental constitutional document of yes. this country. Yes. You know, until we have the you know the constitutional inclusion that is is so fundamental and is so symbolic. I mean, it's more than symbolic, but it is symbolic. Yes. If we're not in the Constitution, then where do we start? Exactly, exactly. And it is across the board. It is it is across the board. It is at every level. It runs deep. It is beyond the discrimination in medicine and health insurance and sick leave and pregnancy leave. It's beyond, uh, it's beyond the minimum wage and income equality. The Equal Rights Amendment is absolutely fundamental so that women can stand up whenever 
they discover these discriminations. Otherwise, they have nothing on which to argue legally, not at the yes. Supreme Court anyway. Yes. Uh, now, I will also say at this point in time that there is a lot of argument that the Equal Rights Amendment is really a, a stealth abortion bill. It is not. Yeah, it is but, not. Yes, it, it affects pregnancy, you know, your ability to have, you know, to not be fired for being pregnant and all those kinds of things. But well, let me explain. Preg if a, if a, I'm going to have to give you an example to make sure. my point. If you have a pregnancy hernia, which is a very common thing, by the way, mm -hmm. you know, you have like a, like a, a, like an outie belly button and you're pregnant and you get a pregnancy hernia. And, you know, you're wearing a pregnancy girdle and your provider tells you for the next three months you can't lift anything at work more than 20 pounds. And you go to work and you tell your boss that a you know, letter from my doctor says I can't lift anything more than 20 pounds for the next eight weeks. There's nothing to stop them from just telling you, well, then you're just going to have to like go home. You're losing your job, et cetera, et cetera. However, if you're a man who pops a, a hernia, you overlifted at the gym yeah. or you know and goes or and goes to work and says oh my doctor says you know i shouldn't have lifted that 200 pound weight at the gym and and now i'm i can't lift anything higher than 20 pounds for the next eight weeks that's that same circumstance is accommodated and everybody's like it's accommodated yes so it's not the pregnancy per se it's the idea of medical accommodation yes. across the board yes okay yes. so an abortion is actually not the same. A Yale law professor many years ago, and there's a lot of, we can go round and round and round with all the legalese about it, but really I like to go to the Occam's razor and give the simplest explanation. Mm -hmm. And the simplest explanation is why I believe that that is the pivot. It's a pivot, and uh, Re uh, Representative Steve Anderson from uh, Illinois, who was the Republican self-described pro-life legislator from Illinois, who fought to get the Equal Rights Amendment passed in Illinois, and he's a lawyer with uh, Supreme Court privileges, so he's a really good lawyer. Yes. He did a write-up for the New York uh, NYU School of Law about this issue, and he goes into in great detail, and if you Google Steve Anderson, Equal Rights Amendment, NYU School of Law, it will pop right up for your listeners. And he does a master's class on this issue, but basically the simplest explanation that I can give is that abortion is, a, is an issue unique to women. And it's thus not a sex equality issue. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really that simple. Yes. Uh, so it's a pivot. I mean, and I understand it. Yes. And it's a pivot because nobody wants to argue that they're against fundamental equality for women. So if they pivot to something that they know is a contentious and socially divisive issue, yes. it's it's an easy pivot. I, I get why they do it, but it simply isn't appropriate. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. And there are many people that including Steve Anderson that agree. Yes. And I'm uh, not a lawyer, so that's why I say in my opinion. Mm. But I do, I can refer you to a lawyer who can explain to you why he agrees with me. All right. And I mean, this, is, well. this has been grand. We're going to need to go, but can you give us any, including the attorney's uh, uh, website again or how to Google him, his name, and uh, uh, any uh, website well, can, that we you can... You can read the brief. It's actually quite easy to read. Okay. It's very, very, very informative. Google Virginia Attorney General suits for the Equal Rights Amendment, or you can Google 
Nevada AG, uh, Illinois Attorney General, and Virginia Attorney General sues. It was in the Hill. It was in the, you know, the, you can find it. And yes. the brief is there. And a Google search will put you there. It's all, okay. it's, it's found on, the, on uh, the internet with a simple search. Excellent. Can I ask what your, I'd like your listeners to do? Sure. Understand please. we're taking this to the court of public opinion. Yes. It will be fought in the courts, but it will also be fought in the court of public opinion. Do you know anybody that lives in any other state? Our two senators. We've now passed the House. It goes to the Senate. We want it voted on in the Senate. Unfortunately, Mitch McConnell has indicated that he's going to add it to the pile of the other 300-plus bills that he was not. We will not bring for a vote. So we are doing the same thing in the in this United States Senate that we did in the Virginia House of Representatives. We have a bill that has successfully done everything it's supposed to do, but it is now going to be stonewalled in the U.S. Senate. Anybody who has senator knows anybody who lives in states. Uh, where we have senators who need to be coaxed into supporting this, we need them to call them and we need them to tell them that equality needs to be not to be ignored. Yes. That equal means equal and all means all. Yes. So that's, that's our ask. We're taking this nationally. We're going to do nationally what we did in Virginia. We're going to make equality for all a fundamental issue of the 2020 election. We're done waiting. Excellent. 93 years is long enough. Absolutely. All right, Eileen Davis, thank you so very much for being on the show. And we hear the call to action and we will answer, okay? All the best, Marcello. And, and thank you again to your listeners for taking the time. Thank you. And, and if they have any questions, they can go to varatifyera.org and we welcome their involvement, we welcome their questions, and we, and we have many ways they can help if they want to. varatifyera.org. Okay, very good. All right. All right, dear. Thank you, Marcello. Happy You'll day. Go. You right, too. Bye. bye now. Bye. And now enjoy Watchfire Music, featuring vocal artist Julia Wade singing Beautiful from her new CD, Sunday Morning. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. Yes, the Lord is greatly to be praised. Honor and majesty are before him. Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. What if it takes a village and a virus to save America from the right? For one brief shining moment, it seemed some referring to themselves as news professionals skirted ever so closely to the bar of Cronkite, Huntley, and Brinkley 
When China lifted its veil of secrecy, revealing its citizens, like Western democracies, as susceptible to linking good, bad, and ugly to global dangers full of pandemic potential. Yet just the facts, cold-watered media faces, sipped and slipped back into a barroom toast, shaken but not stirred, to investigative reporting passing by. Now it's all about who Senator Elizabeth Warren will endorse forgetting 2018 women who ushered in a new democracy, recapturing half the Congress and most of the country, preamble to masses of patriots standing in lines for hours to erase our 2016 era in judgment. What if our 2020 democratic primaries are more new chapter than old communism, socialism, racism, sexism, or the establishment? where inspired, constitutionally equal female citizens serve at a different tempo. Faster than a Trump snake projectile, they attempt to stave off the wave of coronavirus threatening to drown both American health care and an unknowing president. What if democratic infighting distracts independents and modern Republicans from a bloated hog in an updated red cap Rooting for a first Monday in October health insurance surprise for both the right and left. What if our Napoleonic piglet's only forte is rallying confused sheep and enticing nine attack dogs to guard against any Medicaid extensions that save the Affordable Care Act from null and void chance in mock replay of Serpent Promise? Trust me, your eyes will be open wide shut and you will be remade in my image, selfishly me first, unencumbered by the differences between good and evil. What if non-voters remain content with wading in a babbling brook of fat catfish, cajoled by feathered flies, hooking them into failure to seize the day? Distracted by will she or won't she endorse, what if Medicare and Social Security, like the Voting Rights Act, are gutted and left to bleed out until death do USA apartheid. When an emperor with ostentatious wardrobe hides, he's really a coyote stealing substance from the poor to give to the rich recipients of nepotism. What then? What if prudence suggests we not check off blue tsunami from our bucket lists? while friends and family, mesmerized by deluge of economic delusion, are swimming against the currents of justice for all to spawn four more years. But what if we, the people, have had enough of chaotic tweets, rally riots, screaming extremes from the right, I am the only one who can guarantee the fix is in, and the left, Millions who've never bothered will now rise up and occupy increasingly closed polling places. What if our germaphobe-in-chief bidding, come unto me, and I will give you societal uncertainty with pandemic certainty, all on a handshake, wins? What if 60% of the less than 50% of Americans who actually vote after enduring 10 debates from 20 to 2 debaters, chose less out of sexism, racism, or DNC dictate, and more to defeat what lives in America that nourished Trump enablers for decades.
What if massive numbers of voters in vastly politically different portions of the country are ignoring polls, pollsters, campaign calls during dinner, billionaire political ads and talking heads to cast their votes for who they believe will defeat the most dangerous president in American history? What if we learn from the Trump-Pence era a hard and bitter lesson of self-awareness, consciousness thinking, and equal means equal? What if we now acknowledge Trump, Putin, McConnell, Mercer, Adelson, Koch have diminished the exceptional raison d'etre of America's electoral process and now retrieve the gauntlet of Lady Liberty's torch? It is for us to be the human levy asserting, this far you may come, but no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. What if a second revolution avoids a second civil war, not by a leap of faith into the arms of non-voters or die-hard Trump supporters, nor by returning to a pre-2016 America replete with the injustice of real racism, sexism, and denial of genuine justice and equality for all? What if Democrats unite? running for running the nation with affordable love thy neighbor as thyself health care, with aggressive research and development sparing us the flu, Alzheimer's, tumors, brain damage, respiratory illnesses, cancers, heart disease, COVID-19, and emergency rooms. What if a flag-kissing president knew, whether by land or by sea, numbers equal people? Whether fearing Trump-Pence round two or not, only Americans who actually vote establish how we go forward, just as in 2016 we tenaciously took America backwards. What if, remembering what wealthy Caucasian Americans owe hard-working Native Americans, African Americans, Latino, Asian, and LGBTQ Americans, together create a land of the free, where all are actually free? Thank you, and join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard around the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice blog talk radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.